The Athletic. Into a cup final and not spending a penny in January. Couldn't be Todd Bowley's Chelsea, could it? Oh, Palmer has robbed it for Chelsea. And Palmer has surely made sure for Chelsea. Is this another false dawn? Or is the Potatino project gathering pace? And would anyone actually notice if the January transfer window gently closed now? I'm Ayo Akimolere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Okay, so here for today's episode, we've got the Athletics' Nick Miller and also our Chelsea correspondent, Liam Toomey, as well. Liam, let's talk about the Carabao Cup. Let's start with this. Wow, Chelsea running riot against Championship opposition, but that's the kind of Chelsea you feel fans want to see, attacking-minded and actually getting the job done efficiently. Yeah, they made it easy on Stamford Bridge for once. They made it easy on themselves. And you have to say Middlesbrough also made it easy for them. Um, there, there were some real sort of that's just who we are, mate, vibes to the way uh, Michael Carrick had Middlesbrough playing at like three or four nil down, playing lots of what Jose Mourinho would call first station passes into the into the waiting jaws of Cole Palmer and Conor Gallagher. But um, I mean, I think they, you know, they did what they could. They're one of the only clubs with more injuries than Chelsea, mm. and and Chelsea brought the intensity and the sense of urgency that you'd expect from a team that was staring down, you know, a historic humiliation after the first leg and had so much to play for because finals don't feel guaranteed for Chelsea anymore. And this is a big opportunity now for them, even if they end up as significant underdogs against, say, Liverpool next month. Well, I mean, you say that, but I mean, I mean, what else are they playing for this season, right? Like that crucial ninth place, so maybe, maybe getting into the, <laughs> the, the top half. Chelsea games... They just strike me as incredibly stressful. Even the routine wins, mm. like Luton a few weeks ago, it was, what was it, 3-1, 3-0, and then... 3-0. 3-0, and then two goals in the last couple of 10 minutes, and suddenly everyone was panicking. So I imagine being 4-0 up inside, what, 40 minutes or whatever it was last night, it was quite sort of like a soothing balm. It was only when the fourth goal went in that the chance of K-Sara-Sara started. <laughs> they didn't feel quite secure enough. To, to do it before then but still to be able to sing that uh, with no real presumptuousness after 42 minutes I think that's that would have been Rissio Pochettino's dream scenario ahead of kickoff. I was just thinking about that sort of Bowley Clear Lake kind of PR right now um, considering the start Chelsea have had to the season even a final just lifts spirits just a bit doesn't it Liam? Yeah, I mean, they don't necessarily need this trophy to, to validate what is clearly a, a longer term build mm -hmm. But I think the owners, we've, we've spoken about this before, are, are in need of some credibility in the eyes of the fans. I think that this, this team, Mauricio Pochettino as well in English football, and he alluded to that in his post-match press conference saying, I'm desperate to win here. You know, it was, it, it was, I'm sure it was good for a lot of Chelsea fans to hear him say that explicitly because among his harshest critics at, at, at Tottenham uh, were, were people who basically called him a serial runner-up and someone who wasn't actually that bothered, particularly about the domestic cup. So I think on every level for the for the ownership, for Pochettino and for this group of players, many of whom have never won anything as senior professionals uh, and certainly haven't won anything together, to be in a game that really matters now at Wembley with something real to play for when you're irrelevant in the Premier League, it's a, it's a big thing. Yeah, I love that. I mean... 
Carabao Cup will take it, you know, in the heyday of Chelsea. I mean, it was all about Champions League, but let, let's flip it on, on a player that actually shone again uh, yesterday, Nicole Palmer. I mean, phew, this boy, two goals. Wow, how well has he done at Chelsea so far? It's amazing, isn't it? Because at the time, it did feel like a bit of a weird move because obviously City had sold Maras uh, in the summer. You would have thought, uh, and, and Palmer had played a little bit last season. You would have thought, oh, okay, well, he's you know he'll get twenty five games the this season for City. Um, but he's now one of Chelsea's most important players, um, which you know if you were being cruel you'd say maybe isn't the greatest achievement to be this season but um he's certainly played a lot more than he would have done and he's he is a sort of such a crucial part of the Chelsea team which he he wouldn't have been uh at City and it feels like you you would for, for a lot of other players his age you might think that being that crucial to such a big club might be too much but he just doesn't seem to care no I think that was honestly I think that was in his mind when when he made this move because you know City framed it as you're not going on loan you either stay here and accept your role or we sell you Um, and I think he when the Chelsea opportunity came about he looked at it as I can go there and back myself to become the main man and now I don't I'm not sure I mean, he's a confident guy. I'm not sure even he would have necessarily expected to become the main man immediately, which he basically has been ever since he started in the in the starting eleven. But he's he's been really crucial to everything they do with and without the ball. He's been the brain of the attack, and I think that that influence has been heightened by the fact that Christopher Nkunku hasn't been there. And I think it will be really interesting to see how Chelsea rebalance things with both of those in the team. We haven't seen that at all yet, but. Um, for now, he's been the one really dependable guy. And with the exception of the first leg at the Riverside, a really reliable, composed finisher as well, which is something Chelsea have lacked more than anything in the last couple of years. Well, we've just talked about Cole Palmer and the other end of the spectrum. We've got Mikhailo Mudrik. What does that actually say about the current Chelsea project, Liam? Yeah, I mean, they're quite close in age and quite comparable in terms of the amount of senior professional football they'd had before they got to Chelsea. But if you look at the the quality of their football education, it's worlds apart. And, you know, I don't mean that to to insult Shakhtar, but, you know, you, Cole Palmer was learning from some of the best footballers in the world, training against them every single day, learning from the greatest coach maybe ever, um, certainly the the tactical visionary of this generation. Um Whereas Mikhailo Madrid was, you know, getting minutes in the Ukrainian league. Yes, he had a handful of Champions League games in which he looked good. But I think you can see there are there are still fairly fairly basic concepts to mm. understand uh, tactically that he just doesn't have yet. And that's quite scary when you're talking about a player you've paid £62 million for, who is, you know, he's still pretty young, but he's in his early 20s. He's not 17, 18. And it's not even necessarily to to blame him yeah. because, you know, he's been on the journey he's been on. You can't learn what you haven't been taught um, necessarily. But I think the the thing that will be concerning for Chelsea now is that, you know, he, he looked in the first half of that Middlesbrough game more lost or at least as lost as he has been at any point in his Chelsea career in terms of what to do, where to be. And you could see teammates trying to give him pointers, telling him where to run. Mauricio Pochettino was trying to do that as well because he was on that side of the pitch. Um, but it really wasn't a surprise to see him 
taken off at half time. Pochettino said after the game, oh, he was on a booking. It was an unnecessary risk to leave him out there. That felt like he was protecting the player because if anything, it was an unnecessary risk to leave him out there because he wasn't contributing anything. And actually he was giving the ball away in bad positions for Chelsea. Palmer is completely different. I mean, he, he's been plug and play. That that on arrival from Manchester City, he's been able to slot in on the right flank, slot in as a 10. He's played as a nine at times. Wherever he's been, he's been effective. Even if he hasn't always scored or assisted, which he often has, he's so good at pressing. He's such an intelligent presser. Him and Conor Gallagher are genuinely a horrible <laughs> duo to play against, to try and progress the ball against because they they cut off all the right angles. And yeah, he's just been super consistent. Uh, he's been, I think, a real find for Chelsea and, and a real pillar for them to build around now. It, it feels almost quite harsh to uh, judge Pochettino t- too much mm. because he's having to he's having to deal with all with all this at the same time. He's having to deal with knitting so many players together, so many very young players. Mudrick kind of reminds me, there was a really good line. You remember Oliver Burke, who's a kind of young player that uh, started out at Nottingham Forest, was signed by RB Leipzig when he was very young. And Ralph Ranić was the sort of technical director there. And he said, after a few trading sessions with Oliver Burke, he had this really good line where he said his hard drive is empty. He was basically this kind of supreme athlete who didn't know where to run and, you know, didn't really know, sounds stupid, but didn't really know how to play football. And it's a sort of similar thing. Yeah. In that he wouldn't have, uh, while the, the coaching at Forest is is decent, he wouldn't he wouldn't have had that kind of elite level of coaching. But he would have got to where he is based on his physical and technical ability, which which Mudrick presumably got by easily with a, a, a Shakhtar. When you are that quick and that sort of technically good, then you probably don't need to know the sort of exact right runs to make, whereas you do at Chelsea. And, you know, yeah, it, it kind of feels like if, if Pochettino could leave everything else for a month and just kind of work with Mudrick, then, you know... <laughs> then, everything would be great at Chelsea. Then, then, <laughs> yeah, hey, maybe maybe he can fix Mikhailo Mudrick, but, uh, you know, he's got a few other things to do. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there, there's no time. Like and and they're not even in Europe, but there's still no time because you have to try and win the next game. Pochettino spoke after the match about the challenge of just trying to bring players who've been injured back because they understand exactly what they're being asked to do, but they're not physically quite at the level. And so you're trying to build them back up, like Ben Chilwell, like Carney Chukwemeka, conscious of the fact they can't play 90 minutes, but you're still trying to win those games. Um, so you don't always have the luxury of playing players that are slightly off it. And that's... Sometimes that's been re-injuries for Chelsea. Sometimes that's meant that players have been out longer than uh, perhaps they otherwise would have been. But yeah, for some for someone like Mudrik, yeah, the concern is that he's been working with Pochettino now for more than six months and he, he doesn't seem to have picked up a lot of these things. You know, a lot of the good moments he's he's had have been flashes based on the tools we know he has, which is his explosive speed. He's good technically. He's a good finisher when he gets the opportunities. He's got a lot of tools that top coaches would look at and go, yeah, I can definitely make something of that. And if you still get the feeling with him that if he ever did put it together in a real way, he could be an absolute superstar. But to go back to your point, you know, I think a lot of people underestimate how tactically sophisticated this level of football is now. It's more systematized than ever. And maybe if you go back to like the 90s or something, a player like Mudrick could just play on instinct and play as an individualist completely. 
and it would and it would work and it wouldn't stand out so much. But because every top coach and every top team's got these clearly defined roles and everyone has to make a certain run at a certain time, it really stands out when someone just doesn't really know what to do. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akinwalere. Well, I guess that's where recruitment really comes into play then in, in many respects. And I'm sure Chelsea are still learning a lot about that aspect um, as, as they move on. And actually, as we're talking about Chelsea, I mean, even though Poch has said they do need more players, I mean, I'm still looking at my watch. We haven't got that long left in the window. I mean, not not much incomings at this moment in time. Why, why do you think it's stopped? I think there was always an intention from Chelsea's owners to kind of front load their investment. Mm. This is something we've referred to before of spending the kind of money you'd normally see in two or three years in the space of a year. And they would argue that the the investment they made in last January was long-term investment with the exception of the loan fee they paid for João Felix. It wasn't geared towards trying to save the season, which is just as well, because as you <laughs> mentioned in your piece, they went from 10th to 12th. Yeah, yeah. Um, They feel like, I think after that January, they obviously topped things up with a few other younger building blocks last summer. They feel that they have the bulk of this squad in place now. And the the impression that we were getting as the window was about to open was that Chelsea felt that actually if they tried to do too much in January, this January, leaving aside the PSR part of the equation well, at, the at this point in time, right, yeah. I think they were they were wary that they could end up in the same situation that they ended up in in like February last year, where you you either end up with too many players or too many new players to bed in and you lose any sort of coherence you were slowly building up. And we are seeing on the pitch, Chelsea are slowly taking shape in spite of the injuries. You risk setting that back by bringing a load of new players in that then have to adapt and adjust. But I guess in terms of value, and it's very hard to say many players that have come to Chelsea right now have gained value in that respect. The biggest options is to maybe sell someone like Conor Gallagher, who's, you know, he's actually one of the stars of the team at this moment in time. And back to Liam's point, I mean, you get rid of a player like that, you lose that structure that you've been solely trying to build over the last few months. Yeah, and I, I'm a sort of bit of apologist for the the, um, the PSR rules. I know a lot of people aren't huge fans, but one of the the kind of central flaws is it is a system that encourages you to sell players like Conor Gallagher, who not only has, has been very good for uh, for Chelsea this season, but is the sort of player that if you are bringing in all these players from kind of various places that fans don't really have any or initially don't really have any concept of who they are, then Conor Gallagher, homegrown player, is the sort of player that the fans can have some kind of, you know, can identify with and have some sort of relationship with. And if you go, well, yeah, he has been very good, but because we need to kind of make two columns on a spreadsheet match up, uh, we're going to have to sell him, I'm afraid. It's yeah, not, the, accounting, it's not the accounting incentives run counter to the emotional yeah. incentives, don't they? And with Gallagher, it's particularly fraught now because of his contract situation. Um, but because of the conditions in this market that I've written about and that, mm. that you've written about, I don't see him going anywhere this month, to be honest. I don't see where the offer is that would make it worth Chelsea selling him. Because obviously he is a homegrown player. There is no sort of cost to him in an accounting sense. Mm. Um, so if Chelsea sell him for... Forty million pounds, or however much it is that they want, they want for him. Then they can 
bank that as as, as profit uh, in their accounts, which will, you know, help them balance out some of the other players, which are accounted for in a slightly different way. It's not. I don't think it's quite why we all got into football to kind of, you know, talk about the idea <laughs> of. Uh, wasn't it your dream, Nick, to to, to grow up mm. to come through a Premier League academy so that you right. too could one day be fully immortized? Yeah, a big time. And then yeah, sold yeah. on for pure, pure profit. profit. Yeah. <laughs> that is so true. But I, I mean, I think about a team like Arsenal, like Emil Smith-Rowe is another one of those players that could sort of signal that kind of pure profit. And, you know, you look at a player that, and it's such weird position to be in. Maybe in this window, we, we, we see him go for pure profit. Yeah, I think it, it just shows that all of the big clubs are feeling those are feeling those pressures to to varying degrees and you know Arsenal were big spenders last last summer that is all part of this accounting year that has to be reconciled one way or the other um and the other thing we're not seeing which I'm pretty sure we're going to come on to and you mentioned in your piece is that the Saudi Pro League is not acting yeah, as an sure, easy sure. pressure release valve. Mm. Not that they would necessarily be a market for Smith Rowe, Gallagher, people like that, or Armando Breuer, who Chelsea are looking to sell as well at some point. It's difficult and I think it's it, it's tough for fans to see, but unfortunately it's a reality of where uh, Premier League football is right now. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? then we have the podcast for you. Introducing The Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. A British record transfer that takes Moises Caicedo from Brighton to Chelsea for £115 million. Enzo Fernandez, €121 million. Euros. We've seen the list on there, it's 30-plus players. Chelsea have completed the signing of Mikhailo Mudrik. Romeo Lafia. Christopher Nkunku. Cole Palmer. £1.19 billion pounds of signings. I don't understand it, how it's possible. It just It's madness. Just give us a little reminder of the kind of money that was splashed in the last couple of seasons uh, by, by Chelsea, just so people realise just what kind of situation they're in right now. Well, so, yeah, I mean, about a billion pounds in, in transfer fees committed over three windows. I think Chelsea would look at it as two of those windows being of a piece. I, I think they look at the summer of 2022 as being its own animal, really, uh, given that they just come in. Thomas Tuchel was still there, different recruitment model, everything. The last two windows, they've they've spent massively on younger talent, on these hyper long contracts, which which we've mm. spoken about, um, exploiting the one to two windows of longer amortization before UEFA and then the Premier League change their rules to cap it at five years, and headlining those purchases with nine figure deals for Enzo Fernandez and Moises Caicedo, who started against Middlesbrough and. Still look like maybe they need Conor Gallagher's legs next to them to look like a a proper quarter of a billion pound midfield partnership. But oh, can't um, believe that kind of money, man. It's just... But it, you know, Chelsea are looking at all of these deals as long term 
prospects that, mm. that, that these guys will will develop into you know if not world stars which i think is certainly what they're looking at with with enzo and and caicedo then players who will have significant resale value and can maybe even be sold for more than they were bought uh in in time mm-hmm. Nick, i was just thinking about not just chelsea but also maybe those teams in the bottom half of the table as well or the, say particularly the relegation zone you think about leeds you think about southampton um that went last season i mean it's such a risky opportunity to want to better your team. But, I mean, as we saw with Southampton, we just saw with Leeds, was it worth it? I mean, absolutely not. No, I mean, the, the so this is part of a, the piece I've written about basically why, why no one is spending any money. At the time of recording, um, there's only been one player that Premier League clubs have signed who basically is going to, you know, have any impact on the Premier League season from this point, which is Radu Dragazin who signed for for Tottenham. Everyone else has every other move, again at the time of recording, some something mad might have happened by the time you're listening to this. But every other transfer has basically been loans and kids. And one of the factors in this is, is as you say, last January's um transfer window, Chelsea spent a huge amount of money, but the the relegated clubs you mentioned spent 140 million pounds between them. And I think if you asked most people, you know, Leicester, Leeds and Southampton spent £140 million on who? <laughs> uh, and, you know... Fair it, point, fair point. Car- uh, Carlos Alcaraz for, for Southampton, who I kind of partly remember because he was pretty good, partly remember because he has got the same name as the very famous tennis player. Um, but it's, it, it's an indication that spending money in January quite often doesn't work and certainly doesn't have the kind of immediate impact um, that you want if you are spending that kind of money. Um, Leeds and Leicester were actually, maybe not comfortably, but they were, I think they were 14th and 15th at the end of the transfer window and they spent all this money and they still went down. So they sort of serve as a a cautionary tale for um, why teams maybe aren't spending quite so much this month and there are a lot of other reasons, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto, but um, but yeah, they they they're not the greatest example for spending a lot of money in January. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about some of, some of the bottom teams here. Um, you, you've written about Amada Broja. I mean, in terms of you know a team that might be looking for someone up front. Just to clarify, why do you think Chelsea are struggling to offload Amanda Broja? Yeah, his confidence is low, and I can't imagine having it out there that Chelsea are open to selling yeah. him. Uh, is helping in that regard. He he does fit the profile of what a lot of Premier League clubs want in a number nine. He his goal production hasn't really been there in the senior game. He's never been prolific, but there is plenty of time for that to be scaled up. You see lots of strikers really come into their own as goal scorers in their in their mid twenties, really. And he's got a lot of other aspects to his game. He's 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 very adept at leading a press. He's a big physical presence. He's also mobile. He can link play. Um, he's got intelligent movement. He's He always has to be accounted for and that creates space for others. Um, so he has added value for Chelsea. And I think they felt when they, when they signed him to a long-term contract last year, that they did that partly for, you know, value protection because they feel like he, I mean, they, al- they already had evidence that he was the kind of player that other Premier League clubs valued because Southampton were interested in buying him after his loan and then West Ham made a bid for him as well. Um, so he, he, I think he is a player who in a vacuum would have interest. But the problem right now, uh, which is what I, I wrote about in my recent piece, is that more the conditions of the market um, 
you have a lot of clubs worried about PSR, but even even without that, because of the financial inequalities of of modern football, you can only really sell within the Premier League because there are there are four clubs in Europe basically that can pay significant fees for players. None of them would would be looking at Breuer or or an academy player that you, is he valued out thirty thirty odd million or something. Yeah, like you're that. talking you know minimum thirty million. I mean the upper end of what's been reported is like fifty. I think that seems yeah, to be I mean, pretty optimistic. Serie A strapped for cash, La Liga strapped for cash, yeah. other than the big boys. Well, if you actually look at the, I think there were exactly fifty deals last year done for thirty million pounds or more. Thirty of them were paid by Premier League clubs. Uh, eight of the Eight of the other 20 were Saudi Pro League and most of the other 12 were Real Madrid, Barcelona, PSG, Bayern Munich, the names you would expect. Um, so if you're not selling to those four you're, and you're selling a player who isn't of interest to Saudi Pro League or who doesn't want to go there, then you're really selling to the Premier League. But with a player like Breuer, in reality, the market's even smaller than that because if you don't think he's good enough for you, the other big six clubs will likely think the same. Um, but equally, there's probably seven clubs at the bottom of the league, including the three promoted teams, who either don't have the financial resources to do a deal like that or couldn't really feasibly persuade him to sign, which is a problem that Chelsea had with Ian Matson and Burnley last summer um, and also Conor Gallagher and Everton last January. These players don't have to agree to go. You know, They have to see it as a good move for their career. So... Really, the, the the bottom line of the piece was uh, Chelsea kind of better hope that West Ham still want Breuer because uh, there's kind of a narrow band of clubs into which they fit in the middle tier of the Premier League that might be interested in these guys and can afford them. So so in another season, Breuer feels like the kind of player who would who a team who thought ah, we're, we're in some danger of kind of getting sucked into relegations, I might take a bit of a gamble on that. So the example I used in my piece was Crystal Palace. They've got 21 points from 21 games, and they haven't scored many goals. I think there's only a couple of a couple of the teams in the bottom three that have scored fewer goals than them. In another season, they might think, okay, well, they might think of that as a 30, 35 million pound gamble to save the 100 million pounds that they would lose if they got relegated. This season, we've got three of the kind of weaker. Uh, promoted teams who are currently in the bottom three. Then you've got two teams who Everton have been deducted points, might be deducted more. Forest are probably going to get a, a deduction as well. So realistically, those five, the, the, it, those five teams, three of those are going to be the relegated teams, or in, in all likelihood. So there's therefore less peril for a team like Crystal Palace who, who, who while in another season might have taken that that gamble and think oh, we, we do need to you know maybe take a bit of a risk and maybe over, even overpay for for a player who's going to score five six goals which might keep us up there's just not that incentive to do it this season so while as I said in previous years Chelsea might be able to kind of rely on that kind of thing to um, bring in a bit for their fringe players who they don't necessarily need that was not quite as much of an option for them this season. Yeah, what about, um, you sort of spoke about profitability aspects of things and sustainability and FFP as well. I mean, have they still got issues around that, Liam? Um, how close are they to, to, to that conversation? Well, less so with FFP because not being in Europe is a good solution good to all shout, of that. Right? Yeah. You can't fail if you're not part of it. Um, <laughs> as and when they get back into European competition, which could be as soon as next year, that 
could well be an issue because the allowable loss is a lot less um, for for UEFA than it is for the Premier League. Premier League, it's one hundred and five million pounds. Um, I believe for UEFA, it's thirty five. Mm. Um, so there's there's much less wiggle room with UEFA's rules than the Premier League rules. We know that Chelsea were okay with profit and state sustainability for this year because they weren't one of the clubs that were charged. We believe they were sort of just about within the the bounds of it. Um, next year is looking a challenge, which I think is my interpretation of why you're seeing maybe more of an urgency to create a market for Breuer, um, why there might be a sense of urgency to uh, sell Conor Gallagher before June 30th, maybe. We'll have to see what happens this summer. There's already a release clause in Ian Matson's loan deal with Borussia Dortmund at £35 million, which I think Chelsea will probably feel is achievable for, for a club. I, th- I think they do probably need to bring some money in at some point in this in this year to, to remain compliant. But also I think they're looking towards trying to give themselves the wiggle room to do some more in the transfer market this summer when there might be more of a possibility to do bigger needle moving deals. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, obviously Saudi been quite quiet so far, but the summer could also be really interesting and see who who exits and, and, and goes out that way from Chelsea. Um, Nick, I just want to bring us to something you, you spoke about in terms of January transfer windows in January and, and are they really good value? Because before we started the pod, I was talking about, you know, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, that was a January transfer. Brilliant for Arsenal um, hit the ground running to a certain degree Giroud going the other way successful at Chelsea uh, as well but I think something I was interested in you wrote about was that you were saying actually they're only a success if they're a long-term target is that the thing is it more about the strategy than actually just buying someone because you think you need it at that moment in time yeah so the, the if you look at the kind of the, certainly the big transfers that are, have been successful in the last I don't know 10 years in the Premier League People like Virgil van Dijk and Bruno Fernandes and Aymeric Laporte came in at Manchester City a few years ago for quite a lot of money. Those are players who they weren't sort of necessarily sticking plasters to kind of tide you over until the end of the season. Liverpool would obviously, they didn't get van Dijk in the summer, so they didn't sign anyone else. They didn't they didn't go to the, whoever was second on their list of centre-backs because they thought, well, no, he's the guy we want. And if we have to wait until January, and if we, if we have to pay an, an extra like 10, 15 million pounds, then it's, it's going to be worth it. And, you know, it's, it's obviously proved to be uh, a shrewd decision. But again, it's part, as, as you say, it's part of that kind of longer term thinking. I spoke to, for, for this, this piece, I spoke to um, a guy called Omar Chowdhury, who works for a group called 21st who do a lot of research about into football and they advise clubs and various other things. He was saying that they did some research a few years ago, which kind of threw up the idea that there's actually very little correlation between spending, so certainly net spend in January and actually improving in terms of like points per game and stuff for the, for the rest of the season. There are a couple of outliers like Newcastle a couple of seasons ago when they bought that, 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 that sort of first January when they had, um, the, where they are under the ownership of the Saudi Public Investment Fund, they signed uh, Bruno Gimaresh and Kieran Trippier and Dan Byrne. That was a bit of a catalyst to to help them improve for the rest of the season. But as a rule, it it doesn't really work. There's no kind of and we, yeah, we go back to the the example of the three relegated teams last season and even even Chelsea last January. 
Um, there was another bit of research that 21st did, which um, they looked at strikers who were signed over, a, I think it was about a 10-year period uh, in January, and 40% of those strikers did score a goal after signing in the rest of that season. So it's just a kind of uh, another example of how certainly, as you say, the kind of more impulse buys or situations where you think, okay, we, we just need someone in, that doesn't necessarily follow. It doesn't necessarily actually result in any improvement and teams are probably becoming more aware of that when you when you think about players who might be available in january you're 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 generally taking on someone else's problem aren't you um whether it's a, whether yeah. it's a player who's kind of you didn't want to be there anyway, dri drifted yeah. at a club or fallen out of favor or, or in the case of Jaden sancho fallen out with the coach you know there's there's generally a reason they're available in mid-season and if they're not if they're not available then you have to really, really pay a heavy premium for them, which is what Chelsea ended up doing with a lot of their January signings last summer. I think they they did consider those players long-term targets um, and high-value recruitment targets for a, a potential summer window, but you might not have had to pay 105 million Frenzo Fernandez if Benfica weren't in the middle of an extremely promising season. You know, I turned on the TV this morning and the biggest transfer uh, news was Kieran Trippier going to Bayern Munich potentially for 50 million euros. Uh, Which and, kind of doesn't sound like it's happening. Uh, well, exactly yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's the Premier League feeling the pinch at this moment in time. We, we spoke about the Saudi League. They haven't spent much at all. And I'm sure there are many Premier League teams going, please take, take who we've got an offer. But this feels like a, a much more global conversation as well, this January Chantal window. Yeah, the, the very few... Uh, sort of significant deals anyway. I've got Vita Roque score uh, went to Barcelona, but again, that was a kind of more longer term thing. He it was only really a January transfer because I don't think he could sign for Barcelona before before that point. PSG signed uh, defender Lucas Beraldo. Napoli signed a winger Cyril Ngong. But other than that, not much is is happening. It is all kind of you know, loans and loans with a, a potential option to, to buy and um, relatively minor deal, deals where people have kind of thought, well, this is, you know, we might be able to get a little bit of value for money here. But yeah, it's not what, while the Premier League is all, always the sort of dominant force in the transfer window, um, there isn't a huge amount going on elsewhere either. I guess... Let's move forward then away from January. Uh, the, the big one would be what the summer might look like. I mean, I saw an interview with Victor Osimhen yesterday <laughs> saying, I've made my decision. Is that plan Chelsea? Can they afford it? I think they probably need to sell a striker in order to even countenance a deal like that. I mean, that would be a massive, massive deal, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, they they have generated some money, some pure profit money for this accounting year with Mason Mount, Lewis Hall. Maybe they do some more. Maybe they can sell a player after June 30th, which goes towards next year. Um, so the timing of a deal would would be important as well. I, I do get the impression Chelsea are looking to do something in the attacking positions um, unless... You know, Nicholas Jackson makes a massive leap in the second half of the season. I mean, and I've really seen changes Lafcon, that. He still hasn't scored yet. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think you know, I, the conditions aren't there to take that kind of swing in in January for Chelsea anyway, and they know that. But uh, I think the options that they have in the squad will get the rest of the season probably, uh, unless something happens with Breuer in the next nine days or so. 
um, to to change their minds about that. And they have to bear in mind they've barely seen Christopher and Kunku yet. So we'll see what that does to Chelsea's attack as well. But at the moment, I think the thinking is if everything is as it is now in the summer, they will look to try and do something for a striker, whether that's Osimhen or someone else. But Osimhen, obviously, price-wise, would be at the very high end of what they might feasibly be able to do. What about across the, the Premier League, uh, Nick? Um, just in general, I know we, profitability and sustainability knocking on everyone's door. Everyone's seen what's happened to Nottingham Forest and obviously Everton as well. Um, I'm I'm inclined to think people are probably going to spend a bit more wisely, you know, with a bit more forethought. As is this worth it? You know, as opposed to oh, we just need a player. You'd like to hope so, <laughs> wouldn't you? But. I, I don't know. I've, I've kind of written this piece about um, the why no one's spending any money in January, and you know it's all full of kind of maybe clubs are realizing, and maybe clubs are going to be more sensible. But then you could you can envisage a, a, a scenario where, say, Forest get only get a few points deducted, Everton appeal and have their points deduction knocked down a little bit. So the deterrent that has come from Everton's 10-point deduction, which is another big factor this January where people are just kind of thinking, ah, this isn't this isn't just going to be a slap on the wrist that if we you know, break these rules, then we could be in some serious trouble. Maybe then if those punish punishments are kind of knocked down a little bit, then clubs will go, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe we can cope with four points or whatever <laughs> whatever it is. And maybe the Saudi league will start spending again in in um in the summer so that will give us a bit more money to um you know offload some of our previous mistakes and spend them on you know future mistakes perhaps the bright lights of the summer transfer window where a lot more sensible business does tend to get done and people aren't panicking and trying to plug holes and put sticking plasters on maybe it'll it'll all come back round again and it'll be the same as as last summer where it's like two point something billion pounds was was spent by premier league clubs There'll always be room for a mystery box transfer. You know yeah, that, right? Always. You know that. You know that. Anyway, let's end it there. Um, thanks, Liam. Also, Nick, we appreciate your time. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And we'll be back again for another episode tomorrow. Cheers for listening. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. The Athletic.